Every team, every topic, everywhere. This is Believe. Hi, I'm Patrick Honeywell, and this is the Believe in Chef special podcast, the show where we invite amazing chefs and other food and beverage professionals to share the secrets to success and tips on creating signature recipes at home. As a reminder, if you enjoyed today's podcast, please be sure to subscribe, rate, review, and share with your friends. On today's show, we have a great guest, industry leader Mike Bausch, co-owner of Andalini's Restaurants, located in Tulsa, Oklahoma, and its surrounding areas. Mike is also the author of the extraordinary book, Unsliced, How to Stay Whole in the Pizzeria Industry. This power-packed, five-star rated book is a great resource for running a pizzeria. And in this podcast, Mike shares some important strategies on elevating a pizzeria from managing staff to mindset, marketing, and everything in between. Well, good morning, Mike. It's an honor to have you here. How you doing? Very good. Yourself? I'm great. I'm great. I'm excited to have you here. I've uh, been reading a, this amazing book. Maybe you've heard of it. It's called, called Unsliced, How to Stay Whole in the Pizzeria Industry. Have you have you read that book yet? Or I, I have read it. I have perused it more than once. I can <laughs> recite most of it at this point. Yeah. <laughs> well, that's amazing. And uh, so I want to first. I want to um, talk a bit about your history, though. Kind of like what led you uh, out to where you are today in the pizzeria business. And yeah, I mean, because you've had a lot of things going on in your life. It's pretty amazing. Pretty amazing story. And then we'll jump into the book. Okay. Sounds great. All right. So let's talk a bit about your history. I think uh, starting back in New York City. Yeah, it's a, I'm very lucky. I believe that I was raised on both coasts and my family uh, being, you know, one, one generation, not even one generation. My dad, my mom, both born and raised, lived on the island of Manhattan their whole lives and grandparents coming off the boats from Italy and Ireland and being longshoremen and all that New York history definitely influenced how I conduct my life and really, you know, hard work, dedication, and uh, that Northern attitude of uh, the city, the real New York city attitude, not, not a faux one, but a, uh, you know, Hey, treat me right. I'll treat you right. Let's do right by others that the good New York where people give you directions and, and, and haul ass all the time. And then, my uh, dad, you know, getting into the Marine Corps, going all across America. And by the time I was born, he was about to exit the Marine Corps as a lieutenant colonel. And then we were living in California. And then he got thrust back to New York uh, to unscrew up New York's Alamo Rent-A-Car mm-hmm. uh, in Newark, New Jersey, the mm-hmm. most dangerous car rental capital in, in the world in the early 90s. And I lived in Newark, New Jersey. And then... Northern New Jersey and uh, and Hoboken and and in the city from time to time and got to see that aspect of of my life and then went back to California for high school and college. So I think that's why uh, Tony Gimignani and I get along so well is because I've you know pizza is such a New York thing, but we're also San Francisco style people, and it's very interesting to be raised with both both types of culture indoctrinating oneself. Yeah. It might give you an edge. You have experience on the New York side on the, uh, on back East and then on the West coast too. And working, uh, I know that Tony and you are great friends and he's a great guy. He said some wonderful things about you. So that's, that's really awesome. 
yeah, I, I owe a lot of my career to him. So it's, it's very cool. Uh, the pizza industry as a whole is, you know, to the casual listener who's not aware, is a very cool scene. I, I wouldn't say it's been that way forever, but the last 10 years, pizza operators, as we call ourselves, are, are very tight-knit and free giving of, of industry insider tips, especially the independents, people who, who respect what someone else is doing, who is another independent operator, they're way more inclined to, to share stuff while 25 years ago, it would, it would have been, don't look at what I'm doing. And, uh, and uh, if you do take any of my stuff, you're, you know, screw you, screw me, screw you type attitude. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Everything's a secret, right? Yeah. Which I'm like, there's all it's yeast and flour. <laughs> well, while there's so many things you can't keep secret. I I've learned, especially again, for, uh, from guys who share a lot, like guys like Tony, mm-hmm. I've noticed that you, I could give my recipe away. I could just tattoo it on the wall and that's not enough. That's not going to be the thing that's going to make someone just copy it and be successful. It takes a lot more than making an in and out burger to the, to then be in and out. I think you graduated from college and then you decided to uh, head to Tulsa and not continue uh on and maybe become an attorney. Is that what, what, what happened with that? Yeah, it, it was really weird <laughs> in retrospect. <laughs> so I was supposed to go to the, the Marine Corps myself and I had done uh, officer candidate school as a Marine, which is not like enlisted at officer candidate school. You could get kicked out at any moment if you're not being a leader. So I did that in the summer and uh, I found out afterwards I had type one juvenile diabetes. My original plan was the Marine Corps was gonna pay my law school. So then I stayed on the plan, went, did the LSATs, did all the, the courses to be able to go to law school, got accepted, went to my first day of orientation and just looked around and I was like, nope, this, this isn't, this isn't me. I don't want to be more in debt for this. And at the same time, my brother, who's 15 years older than me and was vice president of Alamo Rent-A-Car, the same company my dad went to go work for, my brother went to go work for and ended up even becoming my dad's superior because uh, he he became vice president after just being a rental agent in, in LA and he was getting transferred from Fort Lauderdale to Tulsa. And he was like, I'm getting a bonus to go to Tulsa. You want to come out and check this place out? And I was at that point in my life. It was just the perfect timing. I said, yeah, I got to get out of California. And I'd never been to the Midwest at all for what it's Mm -hmm. worth. And I came out to Tulsa, saw the opportunity which wasn't obvious. I mean, we took over an ice cream shop in a suburb in 2004, opened in 2005, and I'm six months removed from, from college. And I always Gosh. say, you know, I, I, ain't, I ain't leave California, drive halfway across America to suck at making pizza. <laughs> well, you have, uh, you have the touch and you have an yeah, amazing uh, background in, in both sides of, the, of our continent in, in pizza. Also, it sounds like your brother, his uh, super intelligent businessman. So you were, you did, you're probably pretty sharp to get together with him. Yeah, my, I think that's just how our family is. My dad's a really hardworking, dedicated leader. He's the greatest leader I've ever met. I mean, he became lieutenant colonel of the Marine Corps in a very arduous time. Any guy that you see on the Marine, uh, that's a Marine correspondent, especially like the last twenty years on the news channels, at some point, one of those, at some point, they work for my dad. Gosh. And my brother was uh, enlisted and he became, you know, right. He got out right before desert storm. He was kind of floundering in his life and then got into business and he revolutionized the way 
that Alamo operated. My dad revolutionized the way that the Marine Corps operated. And then I just got into this and wanted to make this my own. We don't, we can't be in the back seat. That's one thing about all three of us is we want to drive the car. We want the ball and we want to make it better and in our own vision. And I think that we've done that all three in our own different ways. And then, you know, I started Andalini's with my brother's bonus and with his, you know, oversight at the beginning. But then when he was able to fully leave Alamo, we were able to really push this brand to the next level from a business perspective, from a food and quality and brand perspective. I think we had been developing that since day one. Yeah, amazing. And then I think, so you came to Tulsa, you, you and your brother put this thing together. What a great team. And you brought an elevated pizza to Tulsa. Now you have, I believe, five pizzeria restaurants, a food truck, a dining, a fine dining restaurant, two gelaterias. Because I know gelato, but I've been looking at this. I thought, oh, okay. So it's that's those are rest, separate restaurants. That's pretty awesome. And you were named top 10 pizza in America by USA Today, CNN, BuzzFeed, and, and TripAdvisor. So I wanted to ask, or where were you when you heard that you had gotten the top 10 on TripAdvisor, which is amazing. All of them are. And uh, what was your response? I, well, I was driving from one pizzeria to another in the middle of the day, and I got a text from uh, someone who was working with our social media, and uh, she just said, hey, did you, have you seen this yet? And I pull it up, and it was very interesting because it wasn't, you know, you think of something on that level, you're going to get a call from TripAdvisor or that we had ever done business with TripAdvisor, which we had <laughs> not. It's just, uh, it was just a press release, which people who know press releases know that they're pretty bland. And it it was a press release online and it popped on a Google alert and I pulled over into an area I would never really pull over to. And I was like, what? Hold on. And I'm thinking, I'm like, really looking, this isn't BS. This isn't a, this isn't a goof or something. And I'm analyzing it and I just start texting and calling uh, people in the company more so that I wasn't even taking a moment to be proud of it. I was more, hold on, we got to get ready for the weekend. This is, this is gnarly. This is going <laughs> to rock our world. Oh this, man. If press, if press catches this, Hey, change the schedules, start ordering product. And then I was trying to process it. And, and we're, we're the type of crew who, even if we win state, none of us wear a varsity jacket. We're just, we just don't like, we don't revel in our own smell. Mm. So, and at that moment I was trying to process it, but it was a lot to process because we, we've gotten a lot of state awards, but that was our, you know, here's a national accolade saying these are the 10 best reviewed places in America. That isn't, you know, some GQ writer's opinion. Mm -hmm. This is straight up on the algorithm. This is what, if we're going based on reviews alone, this is the best. And that, that was humbling. You know, you so that's amazing. And even for Tulsa, you probably, uh, I think I'm just imagining you getting up to how many restaurants you've got and, and, uh, you've brought a super, uh, pizza and the quality in the restaurants uh, to Tulsa. You probably brought a lot of tourism into Tulsa. They probably love you there. I, mean, I, I am Tulsa famous, I guess. That's, that's <laughs> a, uh, it's a nice feeling. Yeah. The tourism, the tourism aspect of it's interesting because that plays a role in the TripAdvisor thing as well, because we're the only thing on that list that isn't touristy. So yeah, most reviews get weighted heavier if it's someone from out of town. So almost all the people that want on that list are at ports of call or they're in tier one cities like Boston, LA, or then you have Anchorage, Alaska, which is a port of call or Nashville. And then here's Tulsa, which doesn't make sense on paper at all. And I, 
it's definitely a feather in our cap. And Tulsa's tourism has increased, but it's not, it's, we're not a connecting flight to anything. You, you chose to come here if you're here. Mm-hmm. It's not by accident. Let's jump into the book. What's your inspiration to write it? How did you, you know, when did you start planning it and how did it, how did it become? The, the start of it was when we went from store one to store two, I was trying to get staff at both stores to, to be me. And I had done everything, the payroll to all the recipes, all every single aspect of the restaurant I had done on my own for six years. So now that we're store two, I have to get, when someone shows up late, someone else has to have the talk or someone else has to do the quality checks because I can't do every single one. I can do almost all of them and go and, you know, run around like a chicken with my head cut off between Mm -hmm. two stores, but I can't do all of them. So I made a manager training that I started training my three managers at the time on. I got it from 60 pages and then I developed it to 90 pages after writing that and then training upwards of, you know, 90 different people over the next four years on it. I thought that that was, the good basis of helping other businesses because I was being asked to speak at pizza expo in Vegas. And I would start to talk about things of how I train. And I would, the, I would just see people coming into my room that were leaving other speeches that were like, and, and it wasn't not an ego boost to me, but they were like, Hey, you got the answer. Cause we're looking for the answer and we need the answer. And no one's giving us a blueprint. You have a blueprint. So I realized <laughs> that there was a, there was a thirst for that. And as I wrote more for pizza today and developed more, I wanted to get with the best partner publisher I could find. I found a really great one. He, uh, the people who helped construct David Goggins book and a lot of people's books who are, you know, a lot of Hudson news books are done by this organization. And uh, I got with them and took them all. I, I would just write and write and write, but then I was able to pull it all into an outline. And I remember just feeling this weight lift off my shoulders as I had an outline that finally made sense. And I knew exactly, I knew the whole book before I wrote one word officially into it and then just put it down for nine months and then edited it for another nine months. That's amazing. You know, so the book unsliced how to stay whole in the pizzeria industry could be uh, the title could be how to stay whole in the restaurant industry because it, it's all about restaurants. I mean, it, it I, when I was reading it, I was thinking, oh my gosh, I have friends that have had restaurants or have restaurants. And I believe this would have so much impact on all of them because you cover everything in this thing, 11 packed chapters. And I'm just going to, if it's okay, I'm just going to read through well, the it's... chapters real fast. And then we'll come back and kind of nail a couple things about them. If you don't mind me picking your brain sure. a bit. Okay. Of course. So chapter one, this is your warning. And I picked up out of that, the red pill or the blue pill. Chapter two, get your mind right. And I love the little, uh, you know, you're mentioning Cool Hand Luke, a killer movie. That was really awesome. Chapter three, the impressive experience. You must be an impressive business to survive tomorrow. Chapter four, why should anyone buy from you? So it's all about really having a unique selling point, I believe. And then so many other things in there. Chapter five, why should anyone work for you? Chapter six, communication to staff. You know, I like the FOH versus BOH, front of the house versus back of the house. Um, you know, having worked in hotels and restaurants myself, I'm, I'm just looking at that closely. And then um, day crew versus night crew, you know, crying, trying to create a team environment. Chapter seven, do I suck? Uh, and why yes is a great answer. That was awesome. And chapter eight, create million dollar systems. Chapter nine, how to win with people 
not on your payroll. That was really interesting too. Chapter 11, ownership, and then a really great conclusion. All of these have these auditory little like touches that you do. It's pretty, pretty cool. And I, I want to hear a little bit more at some point about what drove you to write those, because it also shares your, your love of music, you know, and your inspirations. Very much so. Yeah. I, I mean, I love music and I wanted to have a unique selling point to the book. I also realized that not every restaurant person is the type of person who want, I mean, if you're in hospitality, it's about entertaining. So it seemed counterintuitive to make a, a book that wasn't entertaining. Mm -hmm. That wasn't something that you wanted to read the next chapter, as opposed to, I guess I need to do this for my own personal benefit. So that's a, that was a big push for me. Uh, cause again, I just don't want things that suck. I don't want to produce anything that sucks. No, no. And, and again, I, I mean, I spent one, one of the days, one day and my wife would come, she'd walk by, she'd say, Oh, okay. Still reading. Oh, oh okay. Still reading. And then she just left me alone and watched TV in another room. Cause it was, I couldn't get away from it. It's just a beautiful read. And I liked, I like so I liked the auditory, um, palette cleanser, the Metallica story. I thought that was really cool. Yeah. Metallica wrote, um, Symphony and Metallica, they had an album called Symphony and Metallica, came out in 99. And that was the last palate cleanser I came up with. And it was, you know, listening to that song where uh, they made a song just for the live performance, which is very mm -hmm. rare that you would make a song for a live performance and not for the album. Uh, and it's called No Leaf Clover about not being lucky and how just when you think you're at the end of the tunnel and you'd see the light at the end of the tunnel it's actually a freight train coming down the tunnel towards you which is what the restaurant industry could feel like a lot especially this year you think okay we did it we're out it's, we're, we're good and it's nope no you're not <laughs> and if you don't have things buttoned up and systems and organization then your food could be just fantastic amazing it does not matter that was the price of admission and now you're getting kicked out of the park so you know i mentioned 11 I'd say packed chapters because each one has so much information. Uh, what are some important considerations um, before starting a business? Um, I think you wrote down, find your voice and, and um, get your brand identity in together. Very much so. And, and that's not something that you can just walk into, mm -mm. you know, you, you just can't up and become what you will become. And if you say day one, this is what we're going to be forever. Then you're, then you're, married to stagnation and therefore you will not develop and not grow and not endear yourself anymore. There's, there's a lot of businesses that don't want to move on because that means pain and agita and development and growth. And then you have to be willing to say, Hey, it's not perfect or we can do something different or let's use technology more or just go, not go with the times and follow the trends. I'm a big believer in leading the trend and mm. developing the trend. But if you're staying stagnant, you're nothing. You're, you're, you're running on nostalgia and nostalgia has about a 24, 25 year shelf life. So it will mm. fail at some point. Yeah. And especially today, as you mentioned, I mean, in today's environment, you, you have to do a lot of pivots, right? If you look back, how many major pivots do you think you've had since you opened this business? I mean, there's <laughs> major pivots is it's, uh, I mean, you could say one a month or you could say on average, like one every two, you know, changing our brand's logo. That was a major pivot and it took a lot to do. Uh, mm -hmm. Then there's stuff where it's developments and you don't even know that you're pivoting when you're doing it. You're just, hey, we 
we have a bookkeeper now. Hey, that's something. That's cool. All right. <laughs> awesome. let's, let's go with that. That sounds like an idea. Or, <laughs> hey, we need to get a better bookkeeper now that we realize how bad our first one was. <laughs> there's there's a lot of, those are smaller pivots. Then there's big stuff like, hey, this store is doing well, but we're missing out on revenue. Key, key point, we had a restaurant called STG, Specialty and Tradition Guaranteed. Not our gelateria. It was, our first, it was first a pizzeria gelateria, but it only sold Napolitana pizza. Hmm. And that was doing well. It was doing okay. But we would notice that people would come in from concerts and they wanted to you know, get a slice and walk, which Napolitana is not conducive to. Same mm-hmm. thing for late night business. It was very much the, the we were serving the, the Italian purist date night customer well, not the concert goer mm-hmm. or the late night boozer. So we doubled the space out of the bar and made Napolitano one of five different pizzas that we sold at that location. Jeez. And that, and then changed the name to Andalini's Sliced, serving Napolitana, our Tulsa-style pizza, also Ramada. And that made sense. And that was a pivot. And that also is a gamble, but it's an educated guest gamble. And that's what a lot of our pivots typically are. In 2013, you proposed, and that was kind of cool. What happened? You want to tell us about that a little bit? I had proposed uh, in 2013, and then I was at a – it's like, okay, let's we're going to a wedding show. Nothing crazy. I, mm-hmm. I have never been to one, and <laughs> I'm, I'm assuming a lot of pizza guys had been to one because when I went to it, I see all – I mean, your DJ, your photographer, your cake people, but then only two – caterers and Mm. of the two caterers they were not restaurants they were people who just catered on the side and i was just like well i could i could definitely dance with these people like how much is it to have a booth oh 600 bucks okay so we i had done weddings before but we always were like well we wish we had more weddings or and we i said let's just go all in imagine we we were not a pizzeria what would we do to have this catering business well then that's what we should do same thing with our bar i always thought if this bar did not have a pizzeria attached to it, it would need to stand on its own. So let's make it the most badass bar, like a straight up bar, straight up pizzeria and acting like they don't have another leg to stand on. Like they need to be on their own makes you stronger. So I did that with the catering of weddings. And I said, let's just go really all in, make it super pretty. Got the every, I hired people that I just knew had that sensibility. Either they had worked in the wedding industry or they were just, that sensibility and wanted to and taking it on and selling a lot of pizza, a lot of other stuff. Cause people will assume, Hey, you're a pizzeria. You can only buy pizza. They, you know, Cisco us foods, they'll sell us anything we want to buy. We buy from Roma of Springfield and they'll buy, they'll sell me potatoes to make a mashed potato bar. They'll sell me string beans. So I was like, whatever you want, we can do. And the beauty of it, another thing that just, having a different approach to the industry, whatever you choose, our approach was, this is the price. I'm not trying to hustle you. I already have a full-blown restaurant. Most wedding caterers do not put their prices on the menu. They look at how big the rock is and then decide, okay, this is gonna be a $40 a plate thing. Mm-hmm. I said, ah, uh, this is, here's the menu. Here's all the prices. Choose what you want. We'll make it, we'll be on time and we'll make sure you have an, a, an exceptional event. And that quality and value proposition and being straight up, which is just my ethos has fared very well for us. Nice. Wow. Yeah. And I can, I'd hate to be the two, uh, let's imagine two caterers that, you know, that's all they do is catering. They have to compete against you. 
you know, <laughs> I think they're doing okay. It, it, it was just, it was just gnarly how, how much opportunity wasn't being taken. And now they're, you know, all the other restaurant groups in Tulsa are really who are jumping in into the mix and they're hiring, you know, former servers to become wedding uh, liaisons. And now, now a lot of people are doing what we did. So let's run through a few of the uh, chapters. I'm just going to pick a couple and, and uh, throw a, a few things at you and tell me what you think. Um, this is your warning. Chapter one, red pill or blue pill. I think from matrix. I love that movie. Uh, what, what was your thought on that? The, it's really, hey, before you jump into this industry, don't, you know, come correct. Make sure you respect it. You're going to get your ass handed to you. Do not think for a minute that this is going to be easy or that because you've seen a lot of Top Chef that you know how to cook. And that even if you do know how to cook and you're amazing, that you have any concept of all the the pain and, and uh, the arduous nature that this will not solve any of your problems. It is asking for a mountain of new ones. Got you. And then uh, chapter two, get your mind right uh, and the Cool Hand Luke um, comparison. Cool Hand Luke's my favorite film. And I think it's uh, a testament to filmmaking, but it's also, if someone hasn't seen it, it's this movie where, you know, a guy really down and out is still able to motivate and in a way that's not typical motivation, not like, hey, let's all, let's go out there and get them guys. It's not like that. He's, he just wants to stick it to the man by, by hauling ass and everyone else feels that, that pump of, of upbeat morale and they all haul ass with him. And I, I just think it's a beautiful concept. And I believe that happens in a great restaurant when everyone says, let's, let's do this. Let's, let's get going. Let's make this happen. Not being perky or peppy, but just dedicated. That's what beautiful things in a restaurant occur. And I think that that movie personifies that. Uh, chapter three, the impressive experience. You must be impressed. You must, I think, have an impressive business to survive tomorrow. I say in every speech I give, if you're not impressive by default, you're unimpressive. And that's a hard pill to swallow. It's like, but I showed up on time and my shoes are tied. It's like, yeah, everyone does that. doesn't matter. No one cares. No one cares. Until you're impressive in a restaurant, I'm not coming back. And that's something that a lot of restaurants don't get is they they try to be what the other guy is. And they're like, well, he's successful. So if I do what he does, I'll be successful. And that's a fallacy. So chapter four, why should anyone buy from you? So I think you talked quite a bit about a unique selling points, plural. Yes. You don't want to just have home of the fancy cheese, you know, or <laughs> one thing. It's like, okay, all right. I did the one thing. You know, Disneyland is not just the Matterhorn. There's got to be a lot going on. And the more you can give to the customers fandom and to create a fandom, which sounds a pretty high uh, ostentatious aspirational goal for a pizza restaurant, but the more you can give them to love about your restaurant, little Easter eggs and just different stuff is, is how you maintain and grow in a business, especially a pizza business, which isn't the same at all as like a burger restaurant. If you're a burger restaurant and you make great burgers, the the expectation is so much significantly lower than a pizza place. Like everyone has a hard opinion on pizza. No one has 
people, I mean, some places have hard opinions on burgers, not hard, hard opinions or a donut place. Also, you sell a burger, inventory is one burger. Pizza, so many different sizes, so many different toppings that you get into actual metrics of running a restaurant. It's extremely arduous and no one expects their burger to be at their house, you know, in 20 minutes or less, or it's free. Mm-hmm. but or hey i want a two-for-one coupon on my burger it's really weird if you compare the americana approach to pizza and burgers how vastly different they are in the customer expectation okay on chapter six communication to staff you know i don't think we all many think of this but you have the front of the house and the back of the house so the front of the house you know is, is where people are getting you know their service you know when they sit down and and everything in the back of the house everything's being made but the two have to work um, perfectly in unison together and it's all about managing that talk about that the relationship between the front of the house and the back of the house there's it's very easy to form a disconnect people get into tribal you know or tribalism real real quick in anything you know our state's better than your state guys versus girls america versus every other country and it you know healthy competition's great but when it when it's like, listen, these servers screw up the orders every time and I screw up and then I get in trouble or they're getting a ton of tips and I never get tips. Or then the servers are like, hey, I don't get a tip at all. I wait, I can walk away with less money if you screw up my pizza. Mm-hmm. Then I got to go to the table and hey, but I'm sweating my ass off back here. And they're in the front like, well, I just had to be yelled at by, a, you know, a family. There's there's two different worlds and only if they have empathy for each other will it work. And mm-hmm. This is one of the main chapters of what I was training on. This is my management chapter. Like, hey, here's what you need to keep the peace at. And here's what you need to focus on with your staff if they're going to listen to you. And so that chapter about talking or or expecting your staff to want to work for you. And then the next chapter is speaking on speaking to staff and how to actually get what you believe you're saying across to to the members of your staff was that management training now in this book. Hmm. Have you ever thought of, um, you know, I think about it with, like when I spoke with Tony, they do cross training between different pizza. He does different pizzas. They have different stations. Have you ever thought of like a one day cross training where somebody from the front of the house, even though they don't have any experience, maybe works in the back of the house with somebody um, in the back of the house working in the front of the house? I, I do do that. And I'm a real big proponent of it. I, I think the more that they see the other side, the more empathy they'll have. I also, uh, in the last four years, took all of our paper training and made it in videos. And I'll incentivize staff to do training videos of stuff that's not their job to give them raises on stuff that they do so that that way they're also multi-level employees. You know, Hmm. especially if someone's like, hey, I want to get paid more. I'm like, do more training. Just click. And it gives them a badge in the program that we do. And I'm like, okay, you have a ton of badges. We could use you at this store now. Now we can pay you more. Or the more, and I say the more valuable you make yourself, the more I pay you for your value. How about chapter seven, do I suck? And why yes is a great answer. I I really, a lot of that chapter is like just questioning everything about what you're doing. Mm -hmm. And if you do that, you are on the path to being better. If you're saying, do I suck? then yeah, you might. And hey, I care enough to evaluate that. I care enough to do something about it. Therefore, I'm growing. It's the guy or girl who's like, we're the best. Or those guys, yeah, your pizza's okay. It's not nearly as good as ours. If you go to places and you just crap on them and you talk about how great you are, you're not growing. And you can't Mm -hmm. learn anything with your mouth open either. Chapter eight, 
create million dollar systems. I think that's really important uh, for any business, but what did you mean by that? I'm taking the approach to systemizing things and showing, okay, here's a macro level. You could take anything and make it into a system. And then I show a few of mine that have worked very well and made, you know, whether it's saving a hundred thousand here per year to, you know, creating revenue, those will in turn become million dollars systems. And whatever problem someone has, whatever issue that they see, if you're willing to stop, evaluate and create a system and then test it and go back to the drawing board, revise it and test it again and keep doing that, eventually you get a clean, tight system. And then if you have checks and balances on that system, now you can grow and walk away from it. It's not by science, uh, it's not by magic that the big boys are able to systemize things. They do it through testing and evaluation. And there's nothing proprietary about that. There's no reason that, you know, Joe Blow pizzeria owner can't do that. They just need guidance on, hey, this is the process to do it. This is again, taken from the military, from the Marine Corps. Here's how we evaluate <laughs> if there's a if there's a plan or not. Basic leadership plan, you know, before they stormed all these hills and fought these wars, it's not like they've stormed them 10 times before. They go in fresh during a war, but they're prepared and evaluating and coming up with a plan, trying that plan and then reassessing it and doing it again different. That's just what growth is. Hmm. Okay, so, okay, wait, how about this? How to win with people not on your payroll? I think it's a very important chapter. And again, you can tell anyone who's listening to this, this is, this is not the book of me. It's here's real all killer, no filler content. It's not, you know, my story of high school or something like that. There's little quips in there, but I'm trying to really impart, this is what a win-win, the cliche of a win-win comes from. And so whether it's an investor, here's, here's where it could go wrong when they think, Hey, I gave you money. So now I get to decide what's on the menu mm. or how it could go wrong with family when there's nepotism involved, all, as well as how it could go great when you set up clear standards how it could go wrong with the people you buy food from or whoever you buy any product from. So I get into a pretty specific detail, but enough open level that I think it applies to not even just restaurants, but all business. Here's what to expect from a vendor. Here's when to cut it off. Here's how to be fair with them. A simple example would be if someone came into my pizzeria today and say, Hey, what are you playing for flour? Well, I could sell to you two bucks cheaper. If I just up and changed flour, didn't talk to my current vendor at all. That would be dirty business ethics, but it's common. It's very common in the restaurant industry. Instead, I would say, okay, why could you do that? Can you lock that price in for a year? Oh, well, uh, maybe. Okay. <laughs> then I go to my first guy, like this guy could lock in a price $2 cheaper. What could you do? And he's like, well, let me see what I could do. And if they come remotely in the ballpark, I'll stay with the devil. I know than the one I don't, but that keeps things even keel. There's, Creating an impressive atmosphere. Tell me about that, creating impressive atmosphere. A great ambiance will enhance the user experience a lot. And everything, every product that we buy boils down to uh, food service and ambiance or product service and ambiance. Even if you go on Amazon, the product is whatever, pretty much everything. The services that it's going to be to your house within, you know, two days or so. And then the ambiance is a website that is dependable that you trust with a clear delineation of how to pay. So everything, even this super cold corporate version has that. So in a restaurant, do I feel like I want to be here? Not, is it gorgeous? 
it doesn't need to be gorgeous. A dive could be great ambiance if you want to go back to it then it's great ambiance. But are you creating something that sticks in, in the brand? And, and even I heard Seth Godin say uh, this last week, he says, if you have a brand, then if you were to open a hotel, it would have a look to it. But Hyatt doesn't have a brand because if they opened a restaurant, you would have no idea what definably it would look like. But if Nike opened a hotel, you know exactly what a Nike hotel would look like. <laughs> or you have a good idea because that's a brand. Definitely. While Hyatt's just a company. And so if you want to be that, you have to do you, do your thing. And I, I give the example, if you're really into NASCAR, which I'm not, but if you are, I've never seen a NASCAR pizzeria. I, if that's you and you love it and you have stories and photos of you doing NASCAR level stuff, at least that gives me something to invest in. If I see a, another cliched wannabe New York photos of Venice on the wall restaurant. It's just so inauthentic that I'm over it before I even see the menu. Let's talk pizza. So right on. describe a great pizza. Well, great pizza. So it, it take all the service and ambiance off the table. A great pizza, what I think a lot of, what I judge pizzas at, at like Pizza Expo. First thing is the that you're seeing visually is, is it visually speaking to you? And, and what does the crumb look like? So how much rise on the crumb? When you cut it, how, what's the rise? Then I lift under it, see under the pizza. Is it the right cook for this style? If it's a straight up New York slice, it should have a little bit of char. If it's, let's say Napolitana, it should have leoparding char, which is a different style of char. Or if it's more Midwestern, it should be golden. And then the cheese, how does that look? Then you take the first bite and do all the flavors marry up. Are they they're helping each other or is one trying to dominate the other ones? I really don't like when I hear the story of a pizza and the story is better than the pizza itself or where they put on cheeses on it just because they have multiple syllables like Asiago. Asiago is a horrible cheese for pizza. It's going to dominate the rest of the flavors. Unless you're doing a super duper Asiago pizza, which <laughs> no one ever does. It's like Asiago with peppers and sausage. I'm like, why would you make all those together? Those don't make any sense together. And then yeah. you bite into it. You're like, wow, I taste Asiago with the texture of sausage. <laughs> yeah. And so things like that. And if I taste it and it's all marrying up and then it has a great bite, great finish, great, you know, I, I'm not as, I don't reduce pizza down to simply does it flop or not, hmm. which is just as, as short-sighted as to say, well, it's the water from New York, hmm. which some pizza purists will be like, I'm a pizza purist. I only buy pizza if it has New York water, hmm. completely discounting the pH or the acidity is what, what plays a role there. So, you know, having this pizza, does it tell a story? Is it unique? Do I, if it's trying to be like something, does it achieve that? If it's trying to be unique and different, does it achieve that? And do I dig it? is the taste there. And once that's all together and the, and the crumb is gorgeous and you can tell that it's been fermented by someone who knows what they're doing. That's when I enjoy the pizza. So Mike, uh, which, which is your favorite type of pizza personally? Oh man. So, sorry. So many. Sorry. About that. Uh, <laughs> uh, I really, I really do love Napolitana the most because it's so simple, but so incredibly multifaceted to get right. So a beautiful Napolitana is probably my favorite. I love Romana. And I love, I mean, what we do with Andalini's, I love our pizza. I don't, 
but I love many pizzas across America, but I try to make a pizza that would be my favorite because mm-hmm. I figure if it's my favorite, I dig it the most, you'll dig it the most. Is that the Tulsa? And, I mean, because you have a Tulsa style, right? Yeah, the Tulsa style is just, I stumbled upon it when I was trying out all these different flowers when I first moved here and I was using the classic, you know, all Trumps. And then I did a different recipe using an Oklahoma flower and I was, I, it wasn't even designed for pizza, hmm. but I found it had a really, really, forgiving nature so I, I also liked it when I was making a pizza because it just didn't tear that easily and then it had a really nice fermentation and proof and then when I cooked it off it tasted familiar but different and because it has this New York ingenuity but California influence and it's an Oklahoma flower and there really wasn't any pizzerias from Tulsa I was like well I've never tasted anything like this before so then this is the Tulsa style because that's we're the only Tulsa based pizzeria Everyone else was trying to do a St. Louis style or they came from, you know, another town. We were the first, you know, real Tulsa based pizza place. And it's yeah, it sounds like you brought the best of both worlds with your own personal, you know, taste into it coming from back East and then also on the West coast. So how would you describe uh, uh, pizza from a classic pizzeria in new york and a one in the bay area maybe there's a different approach or different style how do you compare the two yeah there's it is interesting uh so i i, I separate the new york styles into coal fired and then joe's you know mm. deck oven versus a coal oven so coal ovens real authentic new york and then the more every single other guy who has a deck blodgett oven and and do they have a nice crispy crust how big is it uh, the cheese, not overly salty. And, and it's a straight up slice. I love a straight up slice. Mm. I fell in love with pizza on a straight up slice in Hoboken where they had a 28 inch pizza and, and I had, and it was one sixth of that slice. And as a cheese slice, it's 14 inches long oh. and you're 10 years old. It's like, <laughs> this is I, the Kevin McAllister home alone too. This is the height of luxury. I'm you having, said, did you say 28 inch pizza, Mike? Yeah, 28 <laughs> inch. Jeez. Uh, I loved, I mean, everything about that was just so awesome. And then, so mushrooms will usually be like from a can and they're working with a, a kitchen space that's like six feet deep. Meanwhile, California, they have more space. So there's more vegetables on a pizza. The mushrooms were, are fresh, but they're usually baked on top. So they kind of dry out. The dough will be more, or the, the crust will be more doughy typically with your mountain mics, your round tables, which define 1980s, 1990s. San Francisco style and now I mean then you have guys like Tony on the scene by the late 90s that do every style that there is and and there it then doesn't become one thing and you have great Napolitana guys in California but that and then you know the whole California pizza kitchen history of going from Spago to California pizza kitchen with Buffalo chicken pizza and and the advent of, of getting wackier with toppings, but still rooted in some degree of culinary sensibility is less focused on the crust and more focused on having really interesting toppings. Uh, I like to blend those worlds. I wanna share a recipe with the listeners and something simple that they can make at home. And you were kind enough to send me a recipe called Mar- Marzano rolls. Give me some background uh, on that one. Uh, so a Marzano pesto roll is a really nice 
approachable to make, but beautiful appetizer that anyone could make. And it's predicated in the classic pizzeria pepperoni. A mm. pepperoni is like you take a dough, you you spread it out super thin, and then you put pepperoni and mozzarella, you roll it up like sushi, you cut the ends off and cut it like sushi, then flip it flat and bake it off. That's a pepperoni. Okay. In this version, we do the same thing, but instead of pepperoni, I put pesto in it, roll it up, bake it off, and then put on top of it shredded Parmesan and olive oil. Once it bakes out, it looks gorgeous. You have pesto and and uh, mozzarella in what looks like a cinnamon roll that's green. And then you top it off with julienne basil and cold San Marzano tomatoes, which you know come from a can. And, and then we would julienne the tomato itself, the, the peeled tomato, and put that on top. And that counterbalance of cold to hot, that amazing Italian sweetness with extra virgin olive oil as well. It's a gorgeous pairing. And, you know, getting to that recipe will take around 40 iterations for us. And when we landed on it and did it that way with the cold Samarzanos on top, it was just gorgeous and we loved it. That's amazing. And I have the recipe. I'm actually looking at it right now. You even have some visuals for it, which I'm going to post this for the listeners and for my wife and for me. So is this available in all of your restaurants or do you, yep, uh, yes, catering? It where does it play the most? It, it does great at all five of our locations and uh, it does very well with catering because it's such an approachable and pretty appetizer and it's easy enough to make for us that we can do a lot of them. Um, they, you know, the suburbs, it goes through waves. It's, it's so inter- interesting having multiple restaurants you know, in different suburbs and how suburbs with with seemingly the same population makeup, same median income, act completely differently. And then in the heart of Tulsa, where we're located, how we get more table turns and it's more of an urban atmosphere. And just seeing that dichotomy of people and how they conduct themselves in different areas of town is very interesting because all of my stores are within 20 minutes of each other. Well, this is great. And and I, I really appreciate this. And I appreciate your uh, giving some insight into your book. It's just an amazing book. How can people reach out to you? How, what do you recommend? I If you want to reach me, the easiest way is to go to unslicedbook.com, which has all my links, whether it's LinkedIn, Instagram, or just send me an, an email. There's a contact form there. If you want to talk consulting or if you want to talk of just pizza in general or even uh, speaking, all that stuff, I'm, I'll, you know, if you're into doing something cool, I'm down to be a part of it. So unslicebook.com. I, I see you as being a consultant big time. Like even uh, I could see you in a boardroom talking to a, uh, like a restaurant chain and just saying, look, it, let, let's cut the crap, you know, here. Let, this is what you need to do <laughs> because you have a lot of value. Oh, I'm, I would love to tell a bunch of, boardroom people to cut the crap that would be that would be <laughs> fine by me the it's it's hard it's hard with the you know the the upstart it, it's i say the in the book there's the jerk the sleaze and the idiot whenever you watch a restaurant show you'll see one of the three a jerk is like great for tv but a horrible person or a sleaze is the guy who's not paying his staff and then the last one that they'll do the restaurant impossible a restaurant rescue will be an idiot and they're just like listen i sold this you know, I was a doctor and now I'm doing this. And I don't know what I'm doing. And I'm like, you're an idiot. That's great. I love working with idiots because <laughs> I can make them non-idiots. <laughs> they're dedicated to it. And then we can get some progress. Nice, nice. Well, do you have any goals for the uh, like immediate future just to get through this COVID thing? Or what, do, what are your thoughts? 
I'm always about growth and, and we have a lot of opportunities. Uh, it's from a business perspective, there's so much opportunity abound right now. People are looking at all the restaurants that didn't close and say, Hey, do you want property or do you want this? Mm-hmm. You know, a lot of, a lot of landowners who had property want to get out right now and they're trying to sell to restaurants they would have never sold to. Mm-hmm. That's an interesting dynamic from coming from a person who's never owned much of anything in his life. And now I'm having a lot of opportunity beyond that from a food perspective, I want to develop more styles of pizza. I want to push pizza into another level and I want to have fun with it. I think there's more ways to have fun with the product. And we have such a tight network here in Tulsa that I have a very unique situation that most restaurants don't have. Typically an independent restaurant just has their own independent restaurant, or if they're a a restaurant company per se with chains, they can rely on the, the chain sending stuff. We've built a network where if one store is down staff, they we can shift it from another store. We, mm. We're sharing product and and we have you know one location that's making a lot of the harder to make stuff, and we can just keep putting work on top of those guys because anything we come up with, they're on board to make it or develop it with us. So in Tulsa, I'm looking to do a bunch more stuff, wow. and outside of Tulsa, you know the sky's the limit. Sounds awesome. Well, listen, Mike, thank you so much for taking time with me on the show. Very interesting. I appreciate it very much. Thank you. For all of you listening out there, Chef Special is part of the Believe Podcast Network. Check it out at Believe.com. And follow me on Facebook and Instagram at Patrick Honeywell. Thank you for listening to Believe. You can show support to your host by subscribing to the show and giving us a five-star rating on your preferred platform. Check us out at Believe.com and search for B-L-E-A-V on YouTube.